This is the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. When a parent or guardian sends their child off to college, one of their unspoken hopes, probably pretty high on the list, is that their kid not get caught up with a bunch of violent extremist revolutionaries bent on overthrowing the government. In this regard, James Monroe's uncle was sorely disappointed. James Monroe, the future fifth president of the United States, was a college student at the College of William and Mary when the American Revolution broke out and he dropped out of school to fight for independence. Which, what did you do your freshman year? From that moment, James Monroe's life rarely slowed down. He is going to be everywhere and meet everyone. Lillian Cunningham of the Presidential Podcast Series describes Monroe as the Forrest Gump of American presidents, which paints a pretty good image. But don't think this guy isn't sharp. He just keeps showing up in American history. He's there with Washington's army at Valley Forge. He's in revolutionary France after the Reign of Terror. He'll go back to France and meet Napoleon to buy Louisiana. And then he'll be the Secretary of State and War during the War of 1812. He's everywhere. And that's before he serves eight years in the White House. As you can tell, there's a lot to cover today. We're going to jump right into it. James Monroe was born on April 27, 1758 in Virginia. That's right. He's the fourth of our first five presidents to be born in Virginia. But he's also going to be the last president from Virginia for a good long time. So, Virginia, your moment in the sun is about to end. So, the year he was born, 1758, that was smack dab in the middle of the Seven Years' War, which you may remember from the George Washington episode. That was the global war between European powers that Washington accidentally started when he ambushed that French captain on a diplomatic mission. It played out in North America as a fight between British colonists and the French and their Native American allies. Well, as he grew up in the aftermath of that war, Monroe grew up during a period when the British Empire was increasingly trying to figure out how to pay the cost of defending its colonies, which, well, Hold that thought for one moment. Monroe's childhood would be a rather tragic one. His mother died when he was 14 years old, and his father died two years after that. Things could have gotten really bad for Monroe and his siblings right about then, if not for the charity of a kind, wealthy, and importantly, politically well-connected uncle named Joseph Jones. Trust me, we all wish we had an Uncle Joseph Jones. Jones took Monroe and his siblings in and used his money and connections to put young Monroe on the path to the College of William and Mary, which was the school that all wealthy, affluent kids went to if they were going to become somebody someday. Jones also opened his nephew's eyes to the world of politics. Jones served in the Virginia House of Burgesses at this time, and this was a time when young men like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were establishing their political careers in that house. Monroe would frequently stop by to watch the debates, and that might have been when he got an interest in politics. But then came the revolution. You know the story by now. Several years of mounting colonial frustration over British taxes and disrespect 
pushed the colonists to the brink of revolt by 1775, when Monroe was an 18-year-old college student. And to have been a college student at this time, it must have all been terribly exciting. So Monroe, caught up in the moment, he started leading his fellow students through military drills on the lawns of the College of William and Mary. They all wanted to be revolutionaries. <laughs> they were doing these drills, by the way, right in sight of the British soldiers, who were probably sitting there thinking, well, this doesn't look good, and I have no idea what that accent was. In 1775, after word arrived that violent uprising had broken out in Massachusetts, Monroe participated in a raid on the Virginia royal governor's mansion. Royal as in totally loyal to the king. The governor had already fled to Norfolk by the time the raid reached his mansion, but 200 rifles and 300 swords were seized from the armory, which they're about to come in handy. You see, it wasn't clear at this point which way Virginia would go, pro-revolution or pro-monarchy. This is roughly the time when John Adams, up at the Continental Congress, he's so desperate to win Virginia's support that he's basically putting anybody who has ever visited Virginia in charge of any congressional committee he can find an opening on to swing that state toward the war effort. This is when he put Thomas Jefferson in charge of writing the Declaration of Independence, and it's when he nominated Washington to lead the army. But the British weren't just standing pat and watching this happen. They were making their own moves to secure Virginia's loyalty. They just made the wrong moves. The decisive moment was when the royal governor, who was building his own army of loyalists, decided to bolster that army by offering freedom to any slave who joined his ranks. There were a whole lot of Virginians who didn't really care about British taxes on tea or stamps up in Boston, but threatened to free their slaves and arm those freed slaves with guns? Now that was every Virginian's worst nightmare. And also a bit ironic and tragic that the forces of liberty here, you might say the revolution, totally the forces of slavery. The revolutionary ranks swelled with furious Virginians until, on December 11th, the two sides fought. The governor lost and fled, and he torched Norfolk on his way out to Britain. Now, Monroe wasn't at that battle, but when he learned of the torching of Norfolk, he decided there was no way he was going to sit out the rest of this war sitting in a college room somewhere. He dropped out of school and joined a Virginia regiment that marched up to support Washington in New York. Because Monroe was 18 years old and illiterate, he was made a lieutenant. Awesome. Monroe's regiment arrived just as Washington was being driven out of New York and into New Jersey by the British. Monroe's first skirmish was actually to set up a defensive position at the rear of Washington's fleeing army, where his Virginians used a blast of musket fire to stop the British pursuit and buy the colonial army time to regroup. This was a time of dire straits for the revolution. Washington was down to just 3,000 men and on a losing streak. He was in desperate need of a victory to prove the Americans might just be able to win this thing. He was about to get one. Monroe had the good fortune of arriving just in time for the Battle of Trenton. The Battle of Trenton, you may remember, 
was when Washington divided his army on Christmas night in 1776 and snuck it across the Delaware River to attack a German mercenary garrison at Trenton. If you've ever seen the famous painting, The Crossing of the Delaware, go ahead and pretend one of those guys in the background is Monroe. Monroe was in the thick of the action during this battle. He led an attack on a mercenary cannon emplacement and captured it just before the Germans were able to open fire. The Americans only lost two men at Trenton and killed or captured nearly 1,000 German mercenaries. One of the reasons the Americans suffered so few casualties is that Monroe helped capture that cannon. Monroe also had the fortune of being shot during this fight. I say fortune because after he recovered, General Washington visited the field hospital where Monroe was getting better and he met him after the battle. Monroe's heroism was recognized, and he was promoted to aide-de-camp for one of the other revolutionary generals. And hey, now he's met General Washington. This sets up a period of war service that is hugely influential on Monroe's future. While serving in the army, he met other up-and-coming military leaders like Alexander Hamilton, who would become Washington's right-hand man and de facto leader of the Federalist Party. And he met the Marquis de Lafayette, a talented young officer from France. At one point, Monroe personally rushed a wounded Lafayette away from a battlefield and stayed at his side until he recovered, leading to a lifelong friendship between the two men. This friendship and Monroe's experience fighting the British also cemented Monroe as an avid lover of all things French and hater of all things British, which is gonna be important. After a couple of years serving in the Continental Army, including earning a merit badge for surviving that brutal winter at Valley Forge, Monroe was sent back to Virginia with a captain's rank to find new recruits. But recruiting at this time, it meant personally offering signing bonuses, and Monroe had no money. And when I say he had no money, I mean he really had no money. Back in his excitement about joining the revolution, he had followed George Washington's example by swearing off a salary. He said, you don't need to pay me. I guess it never occurred to him that George Washington had done that because he already was rich and he owned a plantation and Monroe didn't own squat. So when it came to recruiting, he was entirely unsuccessful. Frustrated, hundreds of miles from the fighting, and at the urging of Uncle Jones, Monroe reluctantly returned to his studies at William and Mary in 1780. Going back to college wasn't all bad, though. He made a great impression on one of his law professors, the current governor of Virginia and future president, Thomas Jefferson. Nice. So that's a pretty exciting revolutionary career. Monroe is there for one of the most important battles, Trenton. He was there for the most legendary winter, Valley Forge and he met Washington, Hamilton, Lafayette, and Jefferson. As the war ended and he finally graduated college, Monroe was emerging as a veteran who checked all the right boxes and had all the right friends for a career in politics. And here's where I should mention, Monroe also checked all the right boxes for a woman named Elizabeth Jane Courtright, and the pair married in 1786. The first interesting moment of Monroe's post-war political career came in 1788, when, at the age of 30, he was elected to serve as a delegate 
to Virginia's Ratification Convention. This is the convention that was deciding if Virginia was going to vote yay or nay on the newfangled constitution that Alexander Hamilton and fellow Virginian and future president James Madison were selling to the country. Madison, by the way, was another delegate at this convention. By the time the Virginia delegates gathered, eight states had already voted in favor of ratification. Now, someone had decided that the rules were that when nine states voted to ratify, the new constitution would go into effect. So Virginia had the potential to be the ninth state that pushed it over the top. The debate over whether to ratify raged back and forth for nearly a month. Would the new constitution surrender freedoms Virginians had so recently won? Or would it bring increased strength and prosperity to all the colonies, and hopefully Virginia most of all? Ultimately, Monroe voted against ratifying the Constitution. He did this because he feared the Constitution had no safeguards for if, God forbid, political parties became a thing and one faction controlled the Congress and the presidency, which, yeah, that can kind of be a problem. But Monroe lost this vote. The convention ratified the Constitution, and just as they were celebrating being the state to push the Constitution over that nine-state threshold, a messenger arrived saying, Sorry guys, New Hampshire beat you to it six days ago. Good try. Voting against the Constitution set Monroe up for an on-again, off-again political rivalry with James Madison. Aside from whether to ratify the Constitution, the two men did agree on pretty much all the big issues. The main thing they really disagreed on was which of them should be the person in power advancing those issues, starting with a race for Congress. As everybody left that ratification convention and began figuring out what they were going to do next, a powerful opponent of Madison and the Constitution convinced Monroe to run for Congress in Madison's district, setting Madison and Monroe up for a fight. This would, however, be a very friendly fight. The two rode around the district together, arrived at events together, gave their respective speeches one after the other, and left together. When James Madison won, Monroe felt no hard feelings, and it probably helped that Monroe was eight years younger than Madison, so he could always tell himself he had plenty of time to catch up, which he shortly did. Monroe was elected one of Virginia's two representatives in the Senate two years later. No hard feelings. Yet. Okay, let's zoom out and skip forward a bit real quick. In 1793, the French executed their king and declared war on Britain, Spain, and Holland, kickstarting the French Revolutionary Wars that every American president for the next 20 years we're going to struggle to stay out of. As Washington looked at an angry France and an angry Britain, and he tried to figure out how to keep both sides happy and not at war with the United States, he decided the best course of action was to assign someone who genuinely loved Britain as ambassador to Britain, and someone who genuinely loved France as ambassador to France. Hey, how about that wounded soldier he'd met at Trenton 17 years earlier? That's right. It's time for James Monroe to go to France. This is actually the first of two stints Monroe would serve as a diplomat in France. Both would be memorable, 
Both would start promisingly, and both would end in crushing disappointment. Monroe's first trip landed him in France right after a period of the French Revolution known as the Reign of Terror, which, well, it was not a good time. One of the more radical governments of the French Revolution, and depending how you count, there were at least a half dozen different governments during the revolution, well, this bunch imprisoned half a million French men, women, and children as political prisoners and murdered 17,000. This is the, the peak time of the guillotine. 25,000 more were killed by violent mobs. But this group, I mean, they looked at the guillotine and they said that's too slow. There were reports that, in their desire to kill more people more quickly, they were loading political prisoners onto boats and intentionally sinking them as a form of mass murder. The terror ended when the National Convention, which a legislative body that governed the country, they realized, my God, nobody is safe, we could be next, and they turned on the man orchestrating the terror, Robespierre, and sent him to the guillotine. Monroe and his family arrived days after Robespierre's death. So, despite this blood-soaked backdrop, Monroe's first trip to France actually did get off to a good start. In the confusion after Robespierre's sudden fall, or, you know, murder, the government was too unorganized to arrange for anyone to receive the latest American diplomat. So Monroe cut to the chase and personally addressed the entire national convention, which is kind of a more powerful version of America's Congress. And he was met with wild applause. Monroe quickly negotiated a commercial treaty and the release of some American sailors who had been captured by the French Navy under one of those previous governments. It was all going good. So Monroe's time in France, it's off to a successful start. He's negotiating treaties. The French are loving him. Oh, yeah. And uh, Monroe and his wife, they're also helping negotiate the freedom of a bunch of political prisoners, including the Marquis de Lafayette's wife. Cool. But in revolutionary France, things can turn on a dime. Remember how George Washington had sent a pro-British diplomat to Britain at the same time he sent Monroe to France? Well, in late 1795, Monroe's diplomat to Britain negotiated a commercial treaty with the British that banned French privateers, aka pirates, from resupplying in American ports, which annoyed the French because they had a treaty with the United States which explicitly said their privateers could totally resupply in American ports. Awkward. And then, food riots in Paris toppled yet another French government, and a new government came to power called the Directory, which didn't much like those treaties Monroe had negotiated. The Directory used that treaty that the United States had signed with Britain as an excuse to end the trade treaty Monroe had negotiated. And then they ordered the French Navy to begin attacking American merchant ships sailing for Britain and capturing their crew and cargo. Monroe unfairly became the fall guy for this abrupt shift in French policy, and he was recalled from France in 1796. So that all ended pretty fast. Monroe was understandably a bit deflated. But don't worry, after laying low and focusing on his finances for a bit, because remember, he never really had much money other than what Uncle Jones gave him, he rebounded politically and became governor of Virginia before returning to France to help purchase the Louisiana Territory during the Jefferson administration in 1803. 
This second trip to France came at the request of President Thomas Jefferson and his Secretary of State, James Madison. Jefferson and Madison had just learned that Napoleon, who was in charge in France now, they learned that Napoleon was interested in selling the Louisiana Territory, and they both wanted someone they trusted on the scene to finalize the deal, so they turned to their fellow Virginian, Monroe. Monroe's time in France again got off to a good start. He met the newly crowned emperor, Napoleon, so this is like the third French government that Monroe has personally dealt with in less than a decade, and the two signed a treaty that gave the Louisiana Territory to the United States. Now, Monroe didn't negotiate this treaty. Really, the hard work was all done before he got there. He just kind of showed up and signed the thing. But you can bet this will be at the top of his resume when he starts thinking about running for president in a few years. Fresh off the success of the Louisiana Purchase, Monroe went to England to renegotiate the treaty between the United States and Britain that had so infuriated the French during Monroe's last visit. As Monroe renegotiated this treaty, one of his top demands was that the British end the impressment of American sailors. This was a British practice of kidnapping sailors from American vessels and forcing them to serve in the Royal Navy. The renegotiation of this treaty is when Monroe's second visit to Europe began to go off the rails. Despite his best efforts, the treaty he secured did nothing about impressment. It only renewed trade with England. Back in the United States, Jefferson was so disappointed in the treaty that he never even sent it to the Senate for consideration. The negotiation with England had been a failure. Monroe then hopped back to France in 1806, where he hoped to tidy up some loose ends from the Louisiana Purchase. Originally, the French had said that some of Florida had been included in the deal, but the Spanish, who still actually occupied and controlled Florida, said, nah-uh, no it didn't. And now the French were saying nah-uh too, which was annoying. But it was nothing compared to what came next. In 1806, the Napoleonic Wars had reached a point where France basically controlled all of continental Europe, and only England on its tiny island stood against Napoleon. But the French couldn't invade England because of that big royal navy. So both sides decided to blockade each other and attack any American ship heading for the rival shores. Again. This had two big impacts on Monroe. First, any romantic notions he'd once had that France and America were BFFs because they both had revolutions, those were dismissed. From now on, he'd believe in the real politic approach of George Washington, where you look after your own interests first. Second, France's attacks on American shipping and the failure of Monroe's treaty with the British resulted in Monroe being recalled from his ambassadorship in disgrace in 1807. To be fair to President Jefferson and Secretary of State James Madison, they kind of tried to make Monroe still feel valued when he got home. He was invited to Washington, treated respectfully, wined and dined, just nobody offered him any jobs. He got the message loud and clear. We like you, but you're politically dead to us. The thing is, Monroe did not want to be politically dead. He'd been there, done that, after his first trip to France, and it had taken him six years to rebuild his reputation. He didn't want to do that all over again. 
So when Jefferson announced he wouldn't seek re-election in 1808, and James Madison announced he would run to replace him, a frustrated Monroe announced he would run for president too. This pissed Madison off quite a bit. Now, this is still an era when people don't campaign for themselves, so Monroe was never on the stump saying mean things about Madison or vice versa, but this was not the friendly rivalry of earlier days when they were riding around Virginia on horseback from campaign stop to campaign stop. This was the presidency they were after. And when Madison won the presidency, and actually Monroe ended up being a bit of a non-factor, Madison decided he didn't have any room in his cabinet for someone who had run against him. So Monroe again went home to Virginia to refocus and rebuild. But don't worry, he won't be there for long. So that's the story of Monroe's two trips to France. Both started promisingly, and both ended frustratingly. And both times I can't help but feel for Monroe. He really strikes me as a competent diplomat, Sometimes you're dealt hands you simply can't win. And I feel like I must mention this, but a couple of the histories I read did say that he might have encouraged the French government during Washington's administration to think that if Thomas Jefferson were in charge, the United States would be nicer to them, which is not something you want your diplomats saying when you're George Washington. Anyway, after failing in his half-hearted presidential run of 1808, the 50-year-old Monroe found himself back in political exile in Virginia. He made a bit of money, got re-elected governor, and probably would have remained in exile down there if events hadn't forced Madison's hand. It's just about time for the War of 1812. Okay, so have you noticed how France and Britain keep attacking American shipping? Well, in 1811, they were at it again. They were stealing tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars worth of goods from American merchants at sea. Madison had tried to get them to stop through something called the Non-Intercourse Act, which is not what it sounds like. It basically said that we won't trade with you until you stop attacking our ships. But the policy failed. France and Britain continued attacking American ships, and the American economy crashed into a depression from the lack of foreign trade. This failure in foreign policy led Madison to sack his first Secretary of State and basically beg Monroe to take the job. After sufficient groveling, and the Monroe biography I read really made it sound like Monroe rubbed Madison's nose in it. Monroe joined the administration and threw himself into the role of Secretary of State. He soon convinced the French to not just end their attacks, but to also return a bunch of the stuff they'd stolen, which good start. He also prevailed upon the British government to end its attacks, and the matter was soon being debated in London, where the British government actually agreed to stop attacking American merchant ships. But there was a problem. By the time the British government agreed on this, the Americans had already declared war on them. I'm not sure America even knew the debate in London was going on, because back then it took a long time for ships to cross the sea. The War of 1812, it has arrived. On the eve of war, Monroe, he was actually even being an advocate for the conflict. I don't know if he expected his diplomats to find the success they did in London. Once the war began, because 
Obviously, declaring war on Britain voided London's obligation to play nice. Monroe's job as Secretary of State called on him to bring the war to a favorable conclusion through negotiation. Monroe dispatched his first peace envoys to England almost as soon as the conflict began. But with the British winning pretty much all the early battles, they weren't really in much of a mood to negotiate. As the war dragged on, things turned from bad to worse for the Americans. Then, in 1814, three big things happened. First, the British finally agreed to talk peace, and Monroe sent a delegation led by future President John Quincy Adams and future five-time presidential candidate and five-time loser Henry Clay to negotiate peace in the Belgian city of Ghent. And (laughs) that introduction doesn't do Clay justice, by the way, but don't worry, we're going to see a lot more from Henry Clay in coming episodes. This guy is a fascinating personality, loves to drink, loves to argue, loves to play cards. He, he's crazy. He's awesome. We're going to talk a lot about him. Anyway, the second big thing that happened in 1814 was an armada carrying British veterans of the Napoleonic Wars invaded the Chesapeake Bay and burned the Capitol building and the president's mansion to the ground, which, not good. The third big thing that happened in 1814 is that President Madison, possibly sitting behind a burnt desk in a burnt mansion, realized his Secretary of War was totally incompetent and fired the guy and promoted James Monroe to fill his shoes. For the next five months, Monroe was both Secretary of State and Secretary of War. Basically, the whole war and the hope for peace were riding on his shoulders. Monroe acted quickly in his new role as Secretary of War and dispatched a Tennessee militia general and future president named Andrew Jackson to defend New Orleans from British attack. Then he ordered regional militia to reinforce him there. Jackson managed to not just defeat the British, but win one of the most overwhelming victories in American history. At about the same time that was happening down south, Monroe's peace delegates in Europe succeeded in negotiating the Treaty of Ghent, which ended the war without any loss of American territory, which was outstanding given how many battles the Americans had lost in this war. After that, Monroe took a well-earned vacation. And let's be honest, that's a pretty damn good job. Organizing military and diplomatic victory? Way to go. As the election of 1816 approached, there was no doubt in anybody's mind that Monroe was going to be the next president of the United States. Looking back now, the best you can say of the War of 1812 was that it ended in a draw. But back then, Americans were convinced that James Monroe had saved the day and secured the peace, and he easily defeated Federalist candidate Rufus King 183-34 to in the Electoral College as President Madison retired. And so, on March 4th, 1817, a 60-year-old James Monroe, the man who had fought at Trenton, served at Valley Forge, signed the Louisiana Purchase, and saved the country from the War of 1812, was sworn in as the fifth president of the United States of America. 
He reported to the burnt-out shell of the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., and got to work. Okay, so what did the United States and the world look like when James Monroe became president? Let's take a look. Well, for practically the first time since Washington's inauguration, Europe was at peace. The Napoleonic Wars that had racked the continent and vexed Monroe's predecessors were over and the end of war meant the resumption of trade. It was about to be boom time for American merchants and farmers as European markets opened up. The economy is going to get so hot that it will actually create an economic bubble that pops and causes a short-lived recession. So, yay, our first economic bubble! Woo! But the economy will generally be in good shape during Monroe's presidency, so don't worry about it. The return of international trade wasn't the only big change for the domestic front. While the War of 1812 may have been a draw between the Americans and the British, it was a huge loss for the Native American tribes who lived in the modern Midwest. Those tribes had sided with the British during the war, or even if they hadn't, they just kind of got lumped with the ones who did, because that's kind of what we did to them and the Americans had effectively driven them off their lands during the fighting, which meant a huge amount of great farmland that had once been Native American territory was now available for settlement or conquest or occupation, whatever word you want to use. In short, after a career that had frequently been frustrated by being dealt losing hands, Monroe was entering the presidency with a handful of aces. Monroe would not waste this opportunity. Monroe's presidency is going to be known for three things. First, the era of good feelings, when he utterly destroys the Federalist Party. Second, the acquisition of Florida, where we're going to spend some more time with that Andrew Jackson guy. And third, the Monroe Doctrine, a declaration of foreign policy that's still cited to this day. First up, the era of good feelings. Okay, backing up a bit. You may remember from Madison's episode that, during the War of 1812, radical anti-war Federalists in the North held a convention where they discussed seceding from the Union, a threat that might have been put to the test if the war hadn't ended just as emotions were getting hot. This threat convinced Monroe that the Federalists were disloyal to the Union and had to be destroyed, and he had a plan to do it. First, he would co-opt popular and sensible Federalist policies. Second, he would embark on a national goodwill tour. And third, he would deprive the Federalists of any federal offices. Let's start with the first. The co-option of popular and sensible Federalist policies. This actually started before Monroe became president. In the final year of the Madison administration, Monroe and other prominent Jeffersonian Republicans came to realize that they had damn near lost the War of 1812, and maybe a weak federal government wasn't the best idea after all. The government needed a small professional army because militia were kind of totally unreliable. It needed national forts and roads so the army could quickly mobilize and defend the borders. And it needed revenue to support the army, roads, and forts. To get that revenue, Monroe successfully encouraged Madison to recharter the National Bank 
which was crazy. This had been one of the biggest issues that separated Jeffersonian Republicans from Federalists, and now leading Republicans were taking the Federalist position. Monroe also convinced Madison to raise revenue through higher tariffs, another Federalist position that Republicans had spent decades fighting against. But remember, this isn't just about raising money for Monroe. It's also about destroying the Federalists. Do you know who benefits from higher tariffs in a national bank? Northern industry, who traditionally had been Federalists. Many of those merchants and budding industrialists up north switched their support to the Republican Party when the Jeffersonian Republicans gave them the thing they cared most about, a bank and a tariff. And it probably helped that at this point it had been like 20 years since a Federalist was in office, so they were probably giving up hope anyway. So that's the first thing Monroe did to kill the Federalists. The second thing he did was go on a national goodwill tour. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, because today we see our presidents all the time. They're in the news. They're on social media. They're constantly holding rallies all over the country. I mean, we're probably often wishing they would just stay in the White House and out of our mind. Well, why do presidents do all that? because Monroe showed them it's a good idea. Back in 1817, presidents didn't travel. Nobody had really left the White House to see the country since George Washington. So when Monroe went on tour, visiting towns and cities big and small, people showed up in droves to see him, and they loved the attention. Hey look, this president actually cares enough to visit and see how we're doing. What a guy! The trips to the South helped soothe the feelings of some of the traditional Jeffersonian Republicans who were unhappy about that national bank and tariff he'd adopted. And the trip to the North, it bought a lot of goodwill from former Federalists who were beginning to get on board with this new national Republican bandwagon. The third thing Monroe did to kill the Federalists was to refuse to appoint Federalists to any government jobs. If you wanted to work for the federal government during the Monroe administration, you'd better damn well be a Jeffersonian Republican. This had the effect of suffocating the Federalist Party. Talented young politicians saw the wisdom of switching parties if they wanted to get ahead or have a career at all, including the son of the last Federalist president, John Quincy Adams, who became a Jeffersonian Republican and served as Monroe's very capable Secretary of State. Monroe didn't actively fire Federalists from the government, but he was president for eight years. And those were eight years where any retirements were replaced with good Jeffersonian Republicans. So it had an impact. By the time the election of 1820 rolled around, the party of George Washington and John Adams, the party that was molded and led by Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist Party was dead. And I mean dead. Monroe ran unopposed for re-election and won a second term 231 to 1 in the Electoral College. The only reason it wasn't a unanimous victory is there was one elector who wanted George Washington to go down in history as the only unanimously elected president. So he voted for John Quincy Adams instead, and John Quincy Adams had not even run. A newspaper called this era of one-party rule the era of good feelings. But a lack of Federalists to campaign against 
didn't really mean an era of political peace and harmony had spread across the land. Without anyone to fight against, the Jeffersonian Republicans gradually began to splinter and fight against each other. In Congress, politicians began organizing around regional issues, like slavery. This threatened to get out of hand when Missouri, which was a territory, applied for statehood in 1820, and Southerners wanted it admitted as a slave state and Northerners as a free state. The two sides became so dug in that there was talk of the nation splitting in two until Kentucky Congressman Henry Clay, the same Henry Clay who helped negotiate the Treaty of Ghent, negotiated a compromise. The compromise said Missouri would be admitted as a slave state, Maine, which was being carved out of some state territory up north, as a free state, and slavery would be forbidden in roughly the northern half of the Louisiana Territory, but allowed to expand in the southern half. This, by the way, is the first of several grand compromises Clay will have a hand in negotiating over the next 30 years to try to keep slavery from causing a civil war. Monroe mostly stayed out of this congressional brouhaha. It wasn't his problem, but it's worth knowing it happened. Slavery is going to become an increasing point of tension from here on out. The cracks in the Jeffersonian Republican Party extended to Monroe's cabinet, too. Monroe had sworn off running for a third term, so all his cabinet members were now competing to be the guy to replace him after he left. They weren't playing for the same team anymore. The Secretary of Treasury, a man named Crawford, he got in such a fight with Monroe one day that he brandished his cane at Monroe, and Monroe pulled a pair of red-hot tongs from the fireplace, and they almost got into a fight, like a duel right there in the White House, before Crawford came to his senses, left, and never returned. I mean, <laughs> the Secretary of Treasury just left the White House, and he's never coming back for the remainder of the presidency. So... That's the era of good feelings. Does it feel harmonious? No. Yeah. It was a brief period of one-party rule brought on by the total destruction of the Federalist Party. But it was also a period that ended in the fracturing of the Jeffersonian Republican Party. Already, a young New York politician and future president named Martin Van Buren was pining for the good old days of two-party rule and he was building a new political party of his own. In time, he's going to ally with Andrew Jackson and disillusion Jeffersonian Republicans to create the Democratic Party that still exists today. But I am getting way ahead of myself. Back to Monroe. The next big happening of the Monroe presidency is the acquisition of Florida, which is going to feature the Andrew Jackson guy I keep mentioning. All right. So for a couple decades now, escaped slaves and refugee Native Americans from Georgia and the American South had been running off to Florida, where they had formed a new tribe called the Seminole. The word Seminole itself means runaway. This growing tribe of Seminole would sometimes raid out of Spanish Florida into the United States, steal some stuff, possibly kill some people, and then retreat back into the Florida swamps. The raids, they were a nuisance, but in the eyes of Monroe, they were also an opportunity. 
Monroe had wanted to bring Florida into the United States ever since he thought he'd acquired it in the Louisiana Purchase back in 1803, only to be later told that no, Florida still belonged to Spain. I get the impression that he was a little embarrassed by this confusion and always wanted to set the record straight and acquire Florida. And now that he was president, he was going to do it, damn it. But there was a problem. Spain was in no mood to sell Florida. And Congress was in no mood to declare war and take it. So how was Monroe going to get it? The answer, Monroe decided, was Andrew Jackson and those Seminole Indians. Monroe sent Jackson, who had a reputation for being a bit of a hothead, to the Florida border with a small army and orders to stop the Seminole Raiders. And he left it open-ended how Jackson should do that. Jackson quickly found that every time he tried to fight the Seminole, they fled to Spanish Florida. So he wrote Monroe and Secretary of War, a guy named John C. Calhoun, who we're going to hear more about in future episodes, and he asked, can I invade? And Monroe and Calhoun took great care to make sure they never wrote back. After a few months, Jackson got so sick of waiting for approval that he said to hell with it, and he invaded Florida without approval, which is probably exactly what Monroe wanted him to do. Jackson easily defeated the Spanish forces that opposed him, and before he knew it, Spanish Florida was occupied Florida. Congress was not happy about this, because hey, declaring war is their job, it says it in the Constitution. But Monroe had not ordered Jackson to invade, so the heat was all on Jackson. Well played. The Spanish were not happy with this either, but they were also dealing with revolts and revolutions all over their empire. Venezuela and Argentina were in open rebellion right now. They couldn't spare any troops to fight the United States in Florida. So Secretary of State John Quincy Adams arranged a treaty by which Spain surrendered Florida and its claim to the Oregon Territory to the United States. And the United States paid $5 million and surrendered its claim to North Texas, an area that may or may not have been included in the Louisiana Purchase. No one could agree. So that's how the United States acquired Florida. Monroe basically manipulated Jackson into capturing it for him so he could get what he wanted without getting his hands dirty. Oh, and uh, those, those Seminole Raiders? Jackson never did manage to defeat them. They're going to continue to be a thorn in the American side until 1858, another 30 years, three years before the outbreak of the Civil War. But then again, stopping the Seminole never really was the point here. Acquiring Florida was, and that was mission accomplished. So what about that third accomplishment of the Monroe presidency, the Monroe Doctrine? The Monroe Doctrine was a foreign policy declaration made toward the tail end of Monroe's administration during his seventh annual address to Congress in 1823. In it, he laid out four simple ideas. One, the United States would not interfere in the wars or internal affairs of Europe. Two, the United States would recognize and not interfere in Europe's American colonies. Three, the Western Hemisphere was closed to future colonization. Four, 
any attempt by a European power to colonize or dominate any nation in the Western Hemisphere would be viewed as a hostile attack on the United States. In short, Monroe said to Europe, Hey Europe, listen up. We won't mess in your affairs over there, but you aren't allowed to mess in anyone's affairs over here. You can keep what you've got now if you can hold it, but once you're out, you are out. Europe probably didn't think much of this little declaration, but Americans loved it, and its significance only grew with time. President John Tyler would cite it when he annexed Texas in 1844. President James Polk will do the same when he pursues Oregon and the American Southwest in the 1840s. Andrew Johnson will cite it when France invades Mexico in the 1860s, and so on and so forth, right up to today. It was a great policy. For anyone who likes strategy games, Monroe is basically signing America up for the turtle strategy. 80 years of focusing on internal development and skirmishes with weaker neighbors while avoiding risky entanglements with powers in Europe. This long-term strategy would set America up to become a superpower in the 21st century. So, those were the three big accomplishments of the Monroe presidency. The era of good feelings, when he destroyed the Federalist, the capture of Florida, which he manipulated Jackson into doing for him, and the Monroe Doctrine, a foreign policy declaration that's still cited today. Monroe retired from the presidency in good spirits in 1825. He was 67 years old. So, how had America and the world changed during the eight years of Monroe? Quite a lot. In addition to acquiring Florida, Monroe had Secretary of State John Quincy Adams settled a dispute about the border between British Canada and the United States west of the Great Lakes. Britain wanted a border 150 miles south of where it is today, but they didn't get it, which is why I now live in American Seattle and not Canadian Seattle. Monroe also saw five new states join the Union during his presidency. Mississippi in 1817, Illinois in 1818, Alabama in 1819, Maine in 1820, and Missouri in 1821. The country weathered its first homegrown financial panic in 1819, but otherwise enjoyed remarkable internal growth. A boom of canal and toll road construction connected cities in a way they had never been connected before, and the country's first free public schools began sprouting up across the Northeast. I don't have any cool inventions to report, but Antarctica was discovered in 1820. I mean, think about that. Antarctica, that giant thing of ice at the bottom of the globe, discovered in 1820. And an American named John Davis claimed to be the first person to step foot on it when he hopped off his ship to hunt for seals. Internationally, almost all of South America and Mexico won independence from Portugal or Spain. So, hey, we have a bunch of new neighbors. Oh, And the book Frankenstein? That was published in 1818. Monroe lived another seven years after retiring from the presidency. But it was not an easy seven years. He was $75,000 in debt when he retired. And there weren't any funds to keep presidents out of the poorhouse then. So he had to sell most of his property and move in with his daughter in New York and beg for money from Congress, which every now and then gave him some. That's where Monroe was, in New York, on July 4th, 1831, 
when he died of old age at the age of 73. It was the 55th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, and Monroe joined Adams and Jefferson to become the third former president to die on that date. So that's the life and administration of President James Monroe. And there's a lot there. But if you were to remember only three things, I would suggest these. First, Monroe dropped out of college to fight in the Revolutionary War, which is pretty cool. Second, Monroe destroyed the Federalist Party by co-opting their best policies, and he governed over an era of one-party rule known as the Era of Good Feelings. And third, Monroe came up with a policy that became known as the Monroe Doctrine, which basically said the United States wouldn't meddle in Europe, but Europe damn well better not meddle in the Americas. It was a policy that would give the United States room to grow and breathe for the better part of 80 years. As for what lessons we can draw from Monroe, I think the number one lesson Monroe teaches us is don't be afraid to change your mind or your policy if there's a better way to go about things. That might sound like a yeah, duh idea, but how many American politicians do we see locked in the same dumb ideas as evidence mounts that the old idea isn't working? Something else works better. Let's try that. When Monroe adopted the traditionally Federalist positions of supporting a national bank, higher tariffs, and a standing army, he destroyed their party and won the most lopsided re-election this side of George Washington. And he set the country up for an era of growth and prosperity. So I challenge you to challenge yourself. Be like James Monroe. Take a minute to question the politics you believe in. Play a thought game where you argue an issue from the other side and presume for a moment that the other side is right. Does it change your mind at all? Maybe not. But if more of us considered the other side of major issues, maybe we would take a step closer to an actual era of good feelings and away from the games of who can yell louder that play out on cable TV. Thank you for joining today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The primary biography for today's episode was The Last Founding Father, James Monroe and A Nation's Call to Greatness by Harlow G. Unger. In our next episode, we'll look at the life and presidency of John Quincy Adams, the son of former President John Adams, who was one of the nation's greatest international diplomats, a totally failed president and a man who found renewed purpose after the presidency as Congress's loudest voice battling the evils of slavery. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.